Our scripture lesson is taken first from the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 18 and reading through the end of the chapter. Hebrews chapter 12, page 1384 in the Pew Bible, page 1384, Hebrews 12:18. Hebrews 12:18, for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded and if so much as a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow and so terrifying was the sight that Moses said I am exceedingly afraid and trembling But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if you did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as things that are made, that are things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. And then our text for today is taken from John chapter 4. We considered uh, uh, John chapter 4 last week, but... uh, Excluded verses 19 to 24, Jesus is teaching on worship, and we want to focus our attention now on uh, verses 19 to 24, page 1,224 in the Pew Bible, page 1,224, John 4, beginning at verse 19. John 4:19. the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Thus far, the reading of God's Word may he add His blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century was a rediscovery or reaffirmation of the great doctrines of grace, what we sometimes call the five solas, sola being the uh, Latin word for alone, 
the truths uh, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, on the authority of Scripture alone, and for the glory of God alone. Uh, That's pretty well known that the Reformation was a rediscovery and a reaffirmation of those great truths of the gospel. But But what isn't as well known is that equally important in the Reformation was the rediscovery and the reaffirmation of worship. Worship had been greatly degraded uh, prior to the Reformation. It had uh, uh, become very uh, man-centered and uh, detached from real life. Uh, The worshipers didn't hear the the, the liturgy in their own language. They heard it in, in Latin, which they couldn't understand. And uh, the receiving of grace was reduced to receiving uh, a physical object from the hands of the priests. It wasn't about uh, the Spirit's work through the Word and uh, through faith. Uh, the, the choirs did all the singing. The congregation didn't do any singing. Uh, there was great emphasis on the the choreography of the priest's movements and the priest's vestments and the uh, external attributes of the church building, all of these things were uh, contrary to Scripture. And part of the Reformation, a big part of the Reformation, was the Reformation of worship. On the 500th anniversary of the Reformation four years ago, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson gave a a lecture on how important the Reformation was for worship, and I took a lot of notes on that lecture, and uh, much of what I have to say today is uh, based on on what he uh, had, he wrote or spoke at that time. Worship is is vital to to our existence. It's one of the most important things that we do. You know, our uh, Presbyterian brothers uh, have a shorter catechism, uh, which, by the way, you can find in the back of our Red Psalter hymnal. Uh, We share a hymnal now with the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and also many PCA churches are using this same hymnal. We're all singing from the same page, so to speak, and they have our confessions in the back of their hymnal, and we have their confessions in the back of our hymnal to indicate our unity in the faith. And in their shorter catechism, the first question I'm sure you've heard uh, made reference to before, what is the chief end of man? Uh, the chief end of man is to, to glorify God, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The, the chief purpose of our existence is to glorify him, to worship him. Uh, Tim Keller in one of his sermons on worship uh, says that uh, in, in worship of the true God, we become fully human. And false worship to false gods especially dehumanizes us. Well, worship is indeed a very important subject and one that uh, we not want to focus on. And I want to focus by, on worship by considering, first of all, that the Father seeks worshipers. The Father is seeking worshipers. He is looking for you to worship Him. You know, the foundation for question one in the shorter Uh, Westminster uh, Catechism is that commandment that you heard me read earlier, uh, the first and greatest commandment. What is the first and greatest commandment? That you love the Lord, that you love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Love him, adore him, praise him, 
Honor Him. Glorify Him. That's, that's what we're supposed to do. And, and that's what the Father then commands us to do. Worship was first offered to God. The first worship that we know about uh, is the worship of Cain and Abel. Uh, they came, uh, the Bible says, in the process of time. Some translations say in the course of time they came with their gifts. But uh, in the literal Hebrew it says at the end of days, not in the process of time or the course of time, but at the end of days. In other words, they were observing a period of days. And at the end of that period of days they brought their worship. We don't know what the period of days was, but we do know that uh, some generations later, Noah was also observing a sequence of days. Uh, He sent out the doves every seven days. And it certainly stands to reason that uh, since God created uh, in seven days and would later command his people to observe a pattern of seven days, that God did not leave those early patriarchs in the dark as to the pattern for worship and seven-day worship and uh, so forth. Uh, Cain and Abel came at the end of a period of days and brought their gifts to God. Uh, they, uh, uh, in the days of their brother Seth, uh, it says, man began to call Upon the name of the Lord. That is an expression used in the Bible to describe corporate worship. Saints assembling together and together calling upon the name of the Lord. We read it in Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make his deeds known among the peoples. The peoples gather together and as part of calling on the name of the Lord, you teach the people about God. Uh, Psalm 79. Uh, Verse 6 says, pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. Not calling upon the name of the Lord is reason for God to show his anger to people. Zephaniah 3 verse 9 says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. God's going to change people so that they all come together and with one voice, one language, uh, praise his name together. Paul uh, writes his uh, first letter to the Corinthians, to the church of God that is in Corinth, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the church is are those who call upon the name of the Lord. The goal of all creation is that the earth should be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as waters cover the sea so that all flesh can come and worship before me. It says in Habakkuk 2 verse 4, so that all flesh may come and worship before me. And again, Psalm 86 verse 9, all nations you have made shall come And worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. The nations will come, that is, come together, unite in bringing worship to God. The Bible is full of commands to worship. Ascribe to Psalm 92, excuse me, Psalm 29, verse 2. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Ascribe to the Lord, the glory do his name. That implies you have to know his name. You have to know who he is. And then when you know who he is, then you respond accordingly and you give him the glory that is due 
uh, a God who is like him and who has done what he has done. Romans 15 says, uh, uh, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul's prayer for the church, that together we would come together, that uh, we would be given endurance and encouragement so that we may, in harmony, come together with one voice and glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's the bottom line. That's, that's what it's all about. It's coming together as the people of God, recognizing who he is And we recognize who he is by hearing about him and hearing what he has done. Not only his power in creation, but especially his love in redemption, in sending his son to be our savior from sin, in dying for us who deserve nothing from him except his wrath. We deserve only punishment, but he loved us and sent his son to die for us, that we through faith in him may be forgiven and have eternal life. And when we see who he is and what he has done, then we respond by giving glory, praise, honor, and thanksgiving by bringing our gifts and offering our lives as a living sacrifice. The Father is seeking those, is seeking worshipers. And because the Father is seeking it, The devil doesn't want you to do it. The devil wants you to stay home. The devil wants you to turn off the radio. The devil wants you to turn off the Internet. He doesn't want you to participate in worship. He wants you to be self-indulgent, to uh, sleep through it all, so that uh, you don't uh, know who God is and you don't respond to him. He wants you to exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. He began with Adam and Eve, telling them lies to get them to put themselves in the place of God and therefore rob honor of the glory that was due him. You don't have to listen to God telling you what's right and wrong. You can be like God and and determine for yourself what's right and wrong. He corrupted Cain's worship so that he could not worship. uh, He did not offer correct worship and he didn't offer it in faith. Cain was not uh, concerned with giving something to God, but he was uh, bringing a bribe to to get something from God. And so his worship became uh, man-centered rather than God-centered. Satan uh, corrupted the worship of the people of the plains of Shinar, the ones who built the Tower of uh, Babel, who thought that they could lift themselves to God and lift themselves to heaven by their own strength, and so attempted to build a tower to heaven. They attempted to uh, say they did not need God and his grace, but could ascend by their own strength and power. Who needs grace? Who needs God? We, we are sufficient in ourselves. We can take care of ourselves. And whatever glorious future there is for us, we can get there under our own power. The work of the prophets like Elijah, especially at Mount Carmel, where he did battle with the priests of Baal, was to uh, call people to worship the true God, call them back to the worship of the true God, and call them away from the worship of false gods. When God uh, uh, sent Moses to Pharaoh, he said, Let my people go. For what reason? So that they might worship me. The reason God called a people unto himself and brought them out of bondage and into the promised land, into the kingdom of God, was so that they might worship him. And when they were on the verge of entering into the promised land, 
God, uh, through Moses, gives them strict instructions. Now, when you get into that land, don't worship me where the Canaanites worshipped, and don't worship the way they worshipped. Destroy all their places of worship, and don't copy them in the manner of their worship. Instead, you worship where I tell you to worship, and you worship how I tell you to worship, because the reason I'm using you to drive them out of the land is because their worship is so corrupt. If only Israel had learned that lesson from generation to generation, because in the course of time, the Israelites were driven out of the land also. And why were the Israelites driven out of the land? They were driven out of the land because they were corrupting the worship of the true God, and worse, they were worshiping false gods. Because they were worshiping on every high hill and under every green tree, wherever they wanted to build an altar, and worshiping to the local bales, covering all the bases just in case, you know, uh, these local deities, they might have some power. So uh, we'll worship in Jerusalem, but we'll also worship here and do this and that. God drove them from the land. In Matthew's Gospel, we read of Jesus being tempted of the devil. He went out into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And the last temptation, the greatest temptation, was the temptation to bow down and worship the devil. Bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus knew that this was a watershed moment, you know. And he did the right thing. He said, Scripture says, you shall worship the Lord your God. Him only shall you worship, and him only shall you serve. He came to build his church, his assembly, his holy congregation, and he wants them to come and offer to the true God true worship. Now, we might ask the question, why, why does God want worshipers? Is he an egomaniac who feeds off the devotion of his, an adoration of his slaves? Is, is that what it's all about? Uh, in some of the uh, ancient uh, Greek and Roman myths, there are, there are gods who, uh, who feed off of the service of their uh, subjects and so forth. Is, is that what God is all about? No, that's not, that's not what God is all about. God recognizes that you and I were made for worship and are most fulfilled when we are worshiping. You know, each one of you has a calling, a vocation. You have gifts and abilities, and God wants you to do certain things in this world. And when you discover what your gifts are, whether it's doing menial tasks or whether it's doing important tasks that... uh, a lot of people depend on. It really doesn't matter. Whatever it is that God has called you to do, when you do it well, there's a sense of satisfaction. You know, I get a sense of satisfaction when I wash dishes. Uh, I, I look at the, the rack in the sink. I, I, I like to do it by hand. I don't, we have a dishwasher, but uh, I, just the two of us don't make a lot of dishes. And since I've been retired, I, I say to my wife, you make the mess, I'll clean it up. And I enjoy just making things clean. It's, it's a sense of satisfaction. It's a tedious task. It's a task that has to be done every day, but you do it well, and, and there's a sense of satisfaction in it. Well, that's 
That's what our lives are supposed to be like. In whatever it is that God has equipped you to do and called you to do, when you do it, you feel fulfilled. You feel encouraged by the fact that you've done something significant. And the most significant thing that we are called to do, and which we are all equipped to do by God's grace through the Holy Spirit, is to worship Him. You know, when... You go to the Grand Canyon for the first time, and you, you look down into the canyon and see the, the magnificent uh, geography there, or uh, geology, excuse me, uh, of, of that canyon. Or you go to the Grand Tetons, and you see these majestic peaks. Or uh, you go to the ocean and, and listen to the waves and, and see the, the waves pounding against the shore and the vast expense, uh, expanse of the ocean. The first time you see those things, and oftentimes every time you go back as well, you're filled with awe and wonder. And it's a delight, a delight to be able to see the glories of God's creation. Well, if it's a delight to see the glory of what He has done, how much more a delight is it to see Him? Now, of course, we can't see Him as He is in all His his immeasurable greatness. But he has revealed himself to us in terms that, that with the eyes of faith, we can see him and glory in him and find joy in him. If worship for you is boring and dull, well, it could be the fault of the preacher. That he's not showing you the glory of God. But if many of your parishioners, fellow parishioners, are seeing the glory of God in the preaching of the word, then maybe it's not the preacher. Maybe you're asleep. And you need to say, Lord, open my eyes. Open my ears. Open my heart. Help me to see your glory, your glory and your power in creation, and especially your glory and your love in redemption, so that I may see who you are and be thrilled and respond with joy and gladness to come to the people with the people of God and worship and adore you in corporate worship. The Father is seeking worshipers because That's what you were made for. And that's where you are fulfilled. That's where you become truly human in worshiping God. But now the Father is not just seeking worshipers. He's seeking true worshipers. Jesus uses that expression because there is a lot of false worship in the immediate context of our text. He talks about Samaritan worship. Samaritans were worshiping a God they didn't really know. Now, they did accept the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, as authoritative for their religious life. But they adamantly refused to accept the later prophets. They knew of them and said, no, that's not for us. And because Scripture needs to be interpreted in the light of Scripture, and when God gives further revelation, we need that revelation They were rejecting it. They really didn't know how to read the Old Testament. They didn't really know how to read the the books of Moses. 
And they didn't know God. And because they didn't know God, they were worshiping something that they, they didn't know. They had the right word for God. They had some, some right ideas, but, but uh, it was so far from the truth that they were worshiping an idol. They weren't worshiping the true God. In order to worship the true God, you need to know who the true God is. You need to, to uh, understand what he has said about himself, which is, you need, you need to understand the Bible. As uh, Dr. Naderhood used to say uh, many times in his uh, sermons on the, the Back to God Hour radio program, uh, we need to be people of the book. You need to learn that book. You need to read it every day. You need to meditate on it, and you need to read a passage and say, now, what does this mean? What is it saying to me? What, what, how, do I, how should I understand that? And if you need help in understanding it, then get help. Read books about the Bible that help you understand it better. You know, that's what those books are for. The book of Hebrews says, remember your teachers. <laughs> Don't just remember the Bible, but remember your teachers and what, what they said about the Bible, because they are gifts from God. God has given gifts to the church. He's given pastors and teachers and prophets and apostles so that we might know him better. True worship is worship of the true God in accordance with how he says we must worship there are uh, uh, lots of people who know the name Jesus and are worshiping Jesus, but they, their idea of Jesus is not in accord with the Scriptures. And so we, uh, we have our confessions that help us to understand the Scriptures. And we have uh, teachers, pastors and teachers that help us to understand the Scriptures. And pastors and teachers have written books that help us to understand the Scriptures. We need that all if we are to be true worshipers. The Father is seeking worshipers. He's seeking true worshipers who know Him so that they can respond properly to Him. But then He's also seeking worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. Now, Jesus says that in response to the question of the Samaritan woman about worship, uh, a dispute between the Samaritans and the Jews was the proper place to worship. Uh, they were standing on Mount Gerizim, which was near the city of Samaria, and that's where the Samaritans worship, because that's where uh, Abraham had built an altar, and that's where... Uh, the Israelites were commanded to go once they entered the promised land. Half of them were to stand on Mount Gerizim and half on Mount Ebal. And the ones on Mount Gerizim were to re recite all the blessings of the covenant. Those on Mount Ebal would recite all the curses of the covenant. Well, blessings are better than curses, so let's go to Mount Gerizim that we might be blessed. Uh, Moses or Abraham had an altar here or in the near vicinity uh, at Shechem. And uh, so that's where they built their altar, and that's where they uh, built the temple. The temple had been destroyed in Jesus' day, but they still had a t uh, an altar there. And they said, that's where we, God wants us to worship. And the Jews said, no, you've got to worship in Jerusalem. Well, the Jews were right. But Jesus says, the hour is coming, and now is, when this dispute won't mean anything. When neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, but in spirit 
and in truth. What is Jesus referring to? Well, he's referring to the fact that our worship is no longer to be directed to a place on earth. Our worship is to be directed to heaven. And uh, that's the lesson of, of Hebrews chapter 12 that I read to you, where it says, You have not come to the mountain that may be touched and burned. Um, that was Mount Sinai. That was the Israelites who had just come through the Red Sea. They'd come to Mount Zion. They were gathered around there. They camped there for almost 12 months. And during that 12 months, uh, uh, Moses went up on the mountain and received the Ten Commandments from God and so forth. But uh, at one time, they were commanded, get yourselves ready. Everybody take a bath. Everybody wash your clothes and gather around the mountain because God is going to come down in fire and smoke and if you just touch the mountain, you could die, you know. And Moses is saying, or excuse me, the author of Hebrews is saying, you and I, when we worship, New Testament worshipers, we're not coming there. Where, where, do, where do we come when we worship? Well, he says, when we worship, we come to Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion can mean Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem in Palestine. But that's not what he's referring to. He says, we come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable company of angels, to, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God. That's where we come. We come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, you remember that the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians who were being persecuted for their Christian faith and were wrestling with the, with the temptation to go back to Judaism because at that time, Judaism was a protected religion. The Romans had said, okay, you can practice Judaism without uh, getting into trouble with Rome. And the Romans were not persecuting Jews for being Jews and worshiping in Jerusalem, but Jews were inciting the Romans to persecute the Christians. And so the Christians were saying, well, you know, the temple's still there and the sacrifices are still there. And, and God did command us to do those. Let's go back to Judaism. Let's go back to Jerusalem. And, and the author of Hebrews is saying, that's going back to the shadows. You know, your worship is so much better because you're bringing your worship to the heavenly Jerusalem. And he's encouraging them to worship with reverence and awe. If, if people who touched the mountain could be killed because God was a consuming fire, if that was true of an earthly mountain, how much more true is it that when you come into the presence of God and join with the, the heavenly hosts that are around his throne, how much more ought you to worship with reverence and awe? You know, we sometimes recite in our liturgy, let us lift our hearts to the Lord. Let us lift them up to the God of our salvation. What does that mean? It means that, that when we worship, our worship goes up. It goes up to heaven. It goes up and joins with the heavenly hosts. That's what our worship is. That's true worship. Worshiping at the true sanctuary. And this has all come about... Because Jesus has opened up the way when he speaks of his hour. He's speaking of 
his death and resurrection and uh, also his ascension to the right hand of the Father and the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost, that complex of events are, are, are an hour that, that make all the difference in the world. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, what happened to the veil in the temple? It ripped from top to bottom saying, no more. No more is, is the way to God closed to you. The way to, the, to God is open to you. And not only does it mean that, that all the Israelites could have gone into the earthly holy of holies, but it meant this curtain is ripped because this whole building is, is obsolete. And 40 years later, Jesus destroyed that building. Uh, so that uh, people wouldn't be tempted at all. And he hasn't permitted the Jews to rebuild it since because he doesn't want anybody to be worshiping him at a place on earth. He wants you to lift your worship up to him. And by the power of the Spirit, we can bring true worship uh, in the true sanctuary where Jesus is. And Jesus says, you know, the hour is coming and it already is because it all focuses on me. My presence here. Is changing everything because he had just said earlier, you know, destroy this temple and build it up and I will repair it in, in three days. I build it up in three days. He was referring to his body as the temple. He, he replaces the tabernacle. He replaces the temple. He is, he's the new temple who uh, gives us access to God. We worship in the temple. We worship God through Jesus Christ. And since he was standing there, he can say, it's already started because I'm here, the true temple. Our worship is to God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. That's worshiping in spirit and in truth. This was what uh, the Reformation was all about before uh, the the Reformation in the 16th century. uh, uh, Ferguson says uh, worship had become visual and sensual instead of word-centered. Grace had been reduced to something tangible, dispensed from the hands of the priests in the form of bread and water and oil, and not conveyed by the Spirit through the Word. The emphasis was what, on, what, on you, what you saw and touched. It was on the choreographed movements of the priest and the physical posture of the worshipers. The emphasis was on architecture of the building, the elaborate designs and decorations, the statues and the pictures, the vestments of the priests, the sound of choirs, the organ uh, music, uh, all designed to inspire awe and fear and reverence and and reflect the glory of God through earthly uh, means. He was justified by the fact that God had once ordained an earthly sanctuary that was indeed very glorious to behold. But it ignored the fact that God, who had once authorized such a building, has destroyed it. And when Jesus ascended, he in effect took all that up to heaven with him so that our worship is now not earth-centered, but heaven-centered, not uh, centered on uh, earthly things, but on the work of the Spirit through the Word. And so uh, we must be careful in uh, our worship not to put too much emphasis on the history of uh, liturgy over the last 2,000 years. There are some good traditions that reflect biblical truth, but there is a lot in the liturgy of the church of the last 2,000 years that has been corrupted by Satan. 
And we need to remember that we are to worship in spirit and in truth, direct our worship to the heavenly Jerusalem and not focus on buildings or on uh, material things here. Corporate worship is sacred assembly. It's the most important thing you will ever do. It, It brings you by the Spirit into the true sanctuary in heaven, into the very presence of God so that we are to worship with reverence and awe. It may not seem exciting and glorious. It may seem, appear to be boring and sleep-inducing. But resist that temptation uh, to liven it up with uh, a return to the shadows of earthly splendor and show. Instead, remember where you are. Remember who He is. And learn about Him more so that you can, with the eyes of faith, see His glory and respond with adoration and praise. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you seek worshipers, that you seek true worshipers who worship in spirit and truth, who lift their hearts to you and join with the heavenly assembly, the church of the firstborn uh, registered in heaven to that great assembly around your throne. We're thankful that we, by the Spirit, may come into that true sanctuary and through Jesus Christ, give you acceptable worship. Enable us, O Father, to do that day by day, week by week, as we honor you in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.